and welcome to the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts, Paul Samuda and Amanda Woodward. With 45 years of combined experience in the world of property buying, selling, investing and developing, they are here to share with you their knowledge in the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and Crew property market. Let's get started. Welcome back to Alexandra for part two of our podcast episode. In part one, we covered the design element of property investing and developing. And now we are going to be covering part two, which is the all-important build. So we're going to kick off with questions around builders. And whilst this is a topic that no doubt many people can speak about for a long, long time, we are going to push through with some of the key areas that an investor needs to consider when working with builders. And Alexandra will share with us her experience of her building company as we can learn a lot of the good practices and how to work with with good companies. So welcome back, Alexandra. Thank you. So let's work through the successful process of finding a build team. A lot of our listeners will contact us to say, you know, do you recommend a builder? I can't find a builder in Stoke-on-Trent. How do I find a good builder? So perhaps you could kick off with some knowledge around that. So a tip I always give people is while you're out and about in your investment area looking at properties, always keep an eye out for vans. So if you see a branded van, especially if the doors are open and you can see it's nice and tidy inside, or if you see a door open to a property, just be a little bit curious and approach them and maybe strike up a conversation. Because if they're busy in the area, and especially if you see their vans dotted around, they're probably doing a good job. So I always say that a tidy site and a tidy van is a sign of a good builder, someone who's safe, someone who's more professional. So first appearances really do matter. And then an- another obvious tip is at networking events, ask other people for their experiences. And getting a a recommendation of who to avoid can be just as valuable as a recommendation of who to use. And there are a couple of ways to manage your build process. So you could choose the hands-on project management approach where you get multiple trades and you have to coordinate what order they need to come in, their availability, their day rates. Or you could choose a more hands-off approach where you have a larger building company who have all these trades under one roof or a project manager who has established relationships with trades. So for me, the, the latter would always be my my preference. Okay. So what would you say some of the red flags are? I mean, you've spoken about untidy vans and unsafe sites, but when speaking with builders, just in your experience, what some of the things that would be a bit of a turnoff, shall we say, in terms of finding a, finding a team to work with? If they were immediately available, I'd be very suspicious that they had the time because at the moment, everybody's so busy. But also having that conversation about deposits, I know it can be quite a a touchy topic about whether to charge deposits or not. But having run my business for three years, I realized that cash flow is the lifeblood of any construction company. And you don't ever want to get to a point where one client is funding the previous project. So running professionally, so how they respond to your emails, how the fee proposal is broken down, how professional they are on the phone to you, what the kind of general atmosphere and language is on their site. So always ask to be taken to a live site so you can see how those dynamics work. Ask a potential builder how they like to communicate. Do they use WhatsApp? Do they use email? 
and what sort of experience they have. Have they worked on a HMO before? Because you don't want yours to be their first one. Make sure that you, you're not shy to ask for their track record or to ask to speak to previous clients and see what sort of relationships they have. Another sign of a more professional builder would be someone who has terms and conditions in place or someone who uses a standard contract, because that's not just going to protect them. It's also going to protect you in case something goes. Good stuff. So let's just say that you've been speaking with two or three different building companies that you found. They sound professional. You've been to their sites. They're clean. They're tidy. They're talking the right language and they've done some projects that you want to work on. So we're at first base. We've got a few, you know, guys that or companies that we're thinking of using. So at this point, we obviously want to get them to the property to have a look, start to agree the works to be done, and all importantly, get that quote in. So how can we make that a smooth process? Because presumably builders aren't going to come around and have a look at 10 different properties for us and give us quotes before we've bought them. But equally, getting some builder insight is quite important before purchasing a property. So how do you think we could manage that? So there's a couple of ways of doing it. I'd say if you have no experience, it would be worth paying for their time or at least offering to pay for their time to be on site. Because when someone is coming to see a potential refurb, they're giving you advice, they're giving you their professional opinion you're gaining value from that insight, whether you use them or not, whereas they have very little chance potentially of winning their job. So th- there's a balance and we do free, free site visits and free, uh, free proposals. However, you're going to get more of their time and attention if you offer to compensate them for that, t- for that time and then perhaps have an agreement where that gets knocked off the price of the job when you actually do it. So just incentivize someone to come to your site over somebody else's. And the other really, really important thing is to communicate really clearly what it is that you want. A builder can't read your mind when you say high spec or average spec or basic spec. They don't know necessarily and they don't need to know what that means. So for us as investors, we can put together a room by room, broken down scope of works. We can show images of a previous project or even someone else's project or even a similar property on Rightmove that's actually done up that you're using as a comparable and say, this is the sort of finish that I'm looking for. This is the sort of kitchen that I'd like to have in. And my most important sort of feature in this house is going to be the bathroom, for example. So I want to make sure that it's a, it's a better finish. So by communicating very clearly what it is that we want, we make their job easier. And I can promise you we spend hours and hours putting together fee proposals of very vague briefs. And we're taking a bit of a risk because we don't know if we've interpreted the brief the right way. And it's so much easier working with people who come to us with a 10 page document with pictures and links to products that they want. It's a kind of music to my ears when someone says that they know exactly the finish that they're looking for. I think that's a really, really good point. Because I think when we're doing some of the smaller projects, the question is, who is actually designing it, you know, saying I'll have a white kitchen and just, you know, white tiles, or, you know, a bathroom from Plum Center does leave the design open to interpretation. And, you know, your builder is not your designer. And I'll share with you a story whereby when we did one of our first property refurbishments in Stowe, we came in at the end and the builder, you know, said, have a look around. And every single room, we had two copper pipes coming down the wall, all the way from top to bottom, and then all the way along the skirting board to the radiator. So I said to the builder, 
I'm not sure what they are, but I don't think I'm supposed to see them. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I don't want the pipes for the radiators on show. And he said, well, that's what we do here in Stoke. I said, oh, like, I really don't want to see them. And he said, well, we can, you know, you can polish them if you like and make them shiny. So we ended up with them, you know, behind some very ugly looking trunking. And, you know, I take full responsibility for that. And that was probably about 12 years or so ago now that, you know, we didn't give the right brief to the builder at that point, which was obviously to sink all of the pipe work into the walls. So there is a lot of stuff that goes into it. And if you don't say what you want, you will never get it. That's my experience with working with builders. Exactly. And with any refurb, it's how far do you go? You could say cosmetic refurb or you could say back to brick refurb and anything in between. So, for example, do you want the the woodwork replacing? Do you want all the doors replacing, the skirting, the architrave? And sometimes there's there's no choice. So if you have to replaster a room, for example, you have to replace the woodwork, depending on what floor you're using, you, you might need to replace it. So it's about really saying what it is that you want to be done. And you can't expect someone who's giving you a quote to then go over and above and do more work for that same price. So if you want more certainty, it's better to discuss these things in more detail right at the beginning. I agree. I agree. And that's something that if somebody doesn't feel confident putting that together with their builder, they can engage somebody like yourself to, you know, help create that scope. Even on a small level, I guess, just to make sure that the builder is working off, you know, some sort of plan. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And that can become a bit of a cookie cutter or, you know, a kind of mold that you that you use as a base. So I always say with every refurb, keep keep 80% of what you do the same and then experiment with the other 20%. But if you don't have a foundation of your minimum standard, it is really hard to then decide how far do you go. Yeah. And I think when, when you first start out, we always like to we have a successful project with one builder and then we just want to keep that builder and have him on every job. But sometimes we do need to have you know additional builders as well because not everybody's going to be available at the perfect time that you want them. So you need to then be able to send that scope to somebody who's never worked with you before and for them to quickly understand what it is that you're looking for. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so that sounds like a really nice, smooth process. <laughs> so we found our builder, we peeped into somebody's house during a refurb, we got their number, we scoped them out, we discussed with them the schedule of work. So we're now starting to prepare for you know the beginnings of the refurb. And we do hear a lot of horror stories about people that have worked with builders, not just in Stoke, but all over the country. And I think for me, it comes down to two things. There's the financial side, the money, and then really just the communication with the builder throughout the project. And if either of those two break down, it can end in quite a mess, really. So what would you share in terms of before kicking off, what sort of paperwork should be in place? How would you suggest payment terms are agreed with builders? And the whole, do we or don't we pay any, the builders any money up front? Could you just share your experience on that? So I can certainly share how we do things. So we start with the scope of work. So if we haven't been given a very detailed scope of works, we'll create our own interpretation and then that get that confirmed by the client. Then once that's agreed, we'll suggest a contingency, so a percentage of the budget that needs to be set aside for drainage alterations or something that we've spotted in the survey, which we always review the survey if it's available and make some suggestions. So money that needs to be put aside just in case something isn't as we expected. If the plaster delaminates, 
Unfortunately, that can't always be predicted and then you might have to reboard a property. So having that money set aside from the beginning will save you time and stress having having to find it later on. So once that scope is agreed, once the timescales are agreed, we normally send our terms and conditions or if it's a bigger project, we'll have a minor works JCT contract which again covers everybody. If you don't have a lot of experience, I'd say maybe get a solicitor, the solicitor who did the conveyancing perhaps, to just cast their eye over the contract and make sure there isn't anything that's massively in the favour of the builder rather than you. So making sure that the terms are fair to both both parties. And then we take a 25% deposit usually to cover those initial materials, the cost of the waste disposal, the, the demolition, the rip out, and to get the ball rolling basically on the job. And then depending on the size of the project, we invoice every two weeks. So there might be 20%, 20%. And then we let the client hold back a 5% retention to make sure that all the snagging is complete before they pay us that final installment. If there are any issues that come up, we communicate straight away. We'll give an estimate or a quote of how much the issue is going to cost to resolve. If we need to bring someone in like a structural engineer, if we find any cracks and then quickly suggest a solution of how to get around the issue. So if it's a trade that we don't already have in in the team, we'll bring a specialist in to resolve it. And the easiest way I find is setting up a WhatsApp group with everybody who's involved in the Projects. So maybe it's two business partners and myself and my husband, who's the project manager and perhaps the site manager for that project, maybe one of my administrators to make sure that there's always a point of contact if something happens to quickly communicate information, maybe share a design for the kitchen. So all the documents are in one easy place rather than having lots of threads of emails all over the place. So That's our process and we find it's really straightforward. It works for sharing videos, for sharing photographs, progress, reports and so on. And then we would expect usually the client to turn up on site maybe every week or two, give them a a bit of a tour. But again, it depends how close to the site the, the client is and how involved they want to be. And would you say that for it's quite normal for investors to ask their builders for photos and video walkthroughs and things like that before they're making their instalment payments? So that's something that we would always recommend. Absolutely. I would never suggest that someone pays an invoice without actually seeing that the works had been done. And that's where most of the horror stories come when you hand over money without actually checking that the work has been done. So if they say at the point where the roof is replaced, we'll invoice invoice number two you have to make sure that that's, that's been done. So perhaps you could send your letting agent to, to check. You could send your sourcing agent if they've sourced the property for you, your project manager, or just ask your builder. It depends what relationship you have and what structure you have within the team. But something I would always suggest you check is make sure you know what trades your builder has within their team because they might say oh no we don't have a carpet fitter and then you have to wait four weeks at the end to find another carpet fitter so make sure you know that they have a heating engineer for example they've got a bricklayer if there's any building works that need to be done they've got their own electrician plasterer decorator and that's how we've set up our team to make sure that we've got every possible trade and then if there's a specialist that we need, we we know them and we, we've used them before so we can bring them in. Good stuff. And do you ever include or do your clients ever suggest to include sort of incentives for finishing sort of on budget or on time or any penalties for overruns? Do you ever incorporate those kind of things? 
It's something that I would consider if someone suggested it, but it's not anything that's ever happened before. I mean, we we are open to JVing with our clients. So there might be an opportunity where we do a project together. That, that would work slightly differently. So you could incentivize your builder by kind of partnering up with them. But I would say you'd have to work with them for years before you get to that point. For us, it's it's never really come up where we have that sort of incentive. We base our relationships on trust and transparency and openness. And yeah, usually if, if something comes up and there's going to be a delay, we communicate that and explain why. And I think communication is so, so important because without communication, you know, people just make assumptions on both sides. So you mentioned about setting up WhatsApp groups throughout the project and for site visits to take place as frequently as possible, subject to obviously where the investors are are based. Any other tips there in terms of the communication side? I mean, sometimes things do go wrong. So how how best would an investor be, you know, communicating with their builder on when things aren't going to plan? So in my experience, 99% of problems could have been resolved with better communication. So it's usually something that hasn't been relayed in the right way that, that means that there's there's an accident or a, an issue on site. So a recent example was poor communication between a client and their builder resulted in the builder using outdated structural engineers designs. So the wrong piece of steel was ordered. And then it was a question of whose fault was it? So if the builder wasn't provided with the correct drawings, then that falls on to the client. But you don't really want to get into that kind of blame game scenario. So making sure that you've communicated something, you've repeated it back to the other person, that you know that they've understood what you're trying to say. But yeah, having having a project manager, having someone impartial who's responsible for communication is almost a full-time job within that role. So as the client, your job is to find the deal, to fund the deal, and to kind of create the team. As the builder, your job is to actually deliver the project. But as the project manager, that's a completely different role, which is to coordinate, to communicate, to, to translate different kind of messages. So if someone's using language that you don't understand, you can have someone in the middle who can kind of explain that to you in a way that makes sense. So having that person in the middle, whether it's an architect, whether it's someone else with project management capabilities, I think it's a very sensible thing to do because as a client or as a builder, you're not necessarily in your atmosphere of genius when you're project managing. And you might be able to find a builder who's great at that, but you can't always expect it. And that's part of the reason why we've set up our business the way that we do. So I can run the business and my husband can run the sites because they're two different skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's often those that are new to the business who are either not too sure about what's happening on site or they are a little bit sheepish and don't want to have those conversations with the builders. So the builders end up controlling the job. And I always say as an investor, this is your asset. You are to control this job, not physically on site, but to make sure that it's happening in the way that you want it to happen. So you either have to be experienced and confident enough to do that or employ the services of of somebody that can yeah and it might be an initial sort of upfront investment and then with every project you'll become more knowledgeable more experienced and you'll be able to deal with these situations because it is quite repetitive every site will have its own challenges so I always say to clients one thing I can guarantee you is that we are going to have challenges and that's our relationship. Like I'm here to help you navigate the challenges that we are inevitably going to face. 
So I don't ever put kind of rose tinted glasses and say, this is the price, this is the time scale, everything's going to be amazing because it isn't with the best will in the world. So you start from that point that there is going to be not necessarily conflict, but there is going to be a challenge at some point. So how are we going to resolve it and discussing that upfront? And any relationship can start that way in order to be successful. So if something comes up, what are we going to do? And having a plan for that from the beginning. But as a client, you're assertive without being aggressive. And the way you do that is by saying what you need up front. Uh, and conflict always arises when needs aren't being met. So either the client's needs or the builder's needs aren't being met. So if you have established what you expect from the beginning, then you're more likely to get the result that you hope for. And no doubt you've been called out to projects that have gone horribly wrong. I mean, what's the biggest mistake that you do see property investors making on this area of build? So usually trusting someone without really doing their due diligence. So trusting a builder off the back of just someone else had used them in the past, maybe for a much smaller project, and then they didn't deliver, not doing this kind of kind of interview process to get to know them and understand how they work. And the most common thing that we find is people say, I paid this great big deposit and I didn't go to site. And when I did, I realized nothing had happened or the builder had kind of run off with my money, which is a horror story. But I think proper research and making sure you've read Trustpilot reviews, Google reviews, Facebook reviews, and spoken to clients can't be replaced. So rushing through the process I think is the worst thing you can do because a builder heavily relies on their reputation. So if they're local and if they work with a lot of people in the area, they'll do everything they can to protect that reputation. All right, good stuff. I'm going to ask you something a little bit controversial now. (laughs) But what are your general thoughts of the quality of builders in Stoke-on-Trent? Any good experiences, bad experiences? Obviously, you're third party because you're not using those companies. But just your general feel in terms of of the the quality locally. So, yeah, this is a tricky one for me because I've been so focused in building my own business that I haven't really worked with other builders, as you say. But there are people that we collaborate with. So one of the core values of our business is collaboration. The business model that we use means that nobody's directly employed by the company, but we have had people who have been with us for two and a half years now and they're loyal and they do a lot of work for us exclusively. And if we get to a point where we're overloaded with work, I have other people that we've worked with before or other people who have referred work to us that I can recommend. And equally, if I had a gap in our schedule and something was delayed and I had three bricklayers with no work to do, I would then send them over to another builder locally so they could use that resource temporarily. So I operate with a lot of flexibility and fluidity in the business to make sure that everybody's needs are met. That's literally my job. So to make sure our clients are happy, our staff are happy, and that again, we keep our our reputation. So I've had positive experiences locally. All my trades are local, but you do, you have to kiss a few frogs, I suppose, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) I've definitely kissed a few frogs, Alexandra. I think probably the biggest risk is when you're starting out and you're working with one man band and the smaller builders, because that is where there is a lot less experience on your side as the investor. You're also working with a builder who perhaps is not as experienced in what you want to do, but the size of the project and the budget suggests that you need to work with this man over here with the van versus this amazing company over here. 
And I think the quicker the investors can scale their business so that their projects allow for them to work with bigger, more experienced and more professional companies, the better. I think that there is a lot of risk in the smaller projects. But when you are sometimes perhaps just painting a room and fitting a kitchen, budgets only require you to have a certain level of builder. But I think if everyone follows some of the stuff that you've gone through today, it will certainly help to make investors a little bit safer and a little bit more savvy, savvy along the way. I've got to ask, though, over the last few years, how you have navigated the challenges with logistics, with materials and prices, not just the COVID delays, but now the whole sort of inflationary period. How are you handling that as a business? So unfortunately, a lot of these kind of material price increases have happened so quickly that sometimes we've committed to a certain project and a certain budget that then went over our expectations. So it's it's about having those honest conversations with your clients and explaining that obviously the budget can't change, but perhaps we could change the scope to accommodate these material price increases. But equally, we have taken a big hit on our profit margins sometimes. And because we are a fat registered business, that adds an extra kind of layer. So if materials are going up by 20%, but then also you've got the VAT increasing, which unfortunately is something that doesn't go into our pocket, it goes straight to the taxman it can be quite hard to remain competitive. So it's been a tricky market to navigate and we're always kind of evolving and learning. We gather a lot of data from every job. So every project that we do, we analyze in Zero, which is our accounting software, and we check how much time did it take? How much manpower did it take? How long did it take? How much did it cost? And how could we negotiate better terms with our suppliers? We're very loyal to certain suppliers and we do over time get bigger discounts, but it's a real balancing act and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's been tricky, but through it, we've really been able to sift through who our ideal client is, who we want to work for and who we are best suited to serve as well, because not every client is going to be right for us and not every builder is going to be right for you. Good. I think that's a fantastic way to end our part two series on build. So Alexandra, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. And for those that are considering using a very professional company with lots of experience like yourselves, just remind us how we can get in touch. So on Instagram, you can find us at Powell Properties and you can check out our website, which is powell-properties.uk. Fantastic. Once again, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. you enjoyed today's episode and if so please hit subscribe and share with those who you think would enjoy it too to get in touch with paul and amanda directly please visit their website www.essentialpropertyoptions.co.uk for more information we look forward to sharing with you on the next episode